you. Thank you. Amen. All right, good to be back with you, and I want you to take your Bibles. We'll jump right into the Sunday school lesson. Uh, turn with me to a very familiar passage, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse 8 and read down through verse 10. And uh, I'm afraid that sometimes the passages that we have memorized, we fail to study and pull out of them some of the benefit. Since we can quote it, we don't study it. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. And if you promise to stay awake, I'll go ahead and let you sit. I don't know if I trust you or not. But Ephesians 2 and verse 8. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word, for your people, for this place. And Lord, I yield to you. Please, would you fill and use me to be a help and a blessing. I pray you'd quicken your word in our hearing. I pray you'd bind our enemy that there might be liberty. Please head just about, minister to our need, and we'll give you the glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk to you for a while about this subject today. Not of, but unto good works. You know, human beings by nature are extremists. You have one crowd that believes you have to work your way to heaven. On the other hand, you have another crowd that they propagate the idea that God doesn't expect any transformation or change when you get saved. And both crowds are in extreme positions. Neither of them are correct. In Ephesians chapter 2 clarifies that. He gives us the balance of the truth. If you study your Bible, God always gives us the balance so that we're not at one extreme or another. He tells us very clearly we're saved by grace. That's the unmerited favor of God. Something unearned, undeserved. We're saved by grace through faith. Faith is dependency upon God and expectancy from God to the point that the word of God is enough. It settles it for me. I don't need a sign or a wonder or a tingle or a feeling. I don't even need an explanation as to why God said it or how it's going to work. All I need to know is what God says, and that's enough to move me to action if I'm operating by faith in the Word of God. So we're saved by grace, the unmerited favor of God, through faith. That's our dependency upon Him and expectancy from Him and letting the Word of God and His promises settle it. But he does tell us in this passage, he said it is not of works. That's pretty clear. Not of works. And of course, Titus 3 and verse 5, not the works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So this is not the only passage that makes that clear. Salvation is not of or by good works. However, it does tell us, um, he said, not of works, lest any man should boast. He said, if you and I get to heaven by works, we'd have something to brag about. Do you realize if there were something you could do to get to heaven, Jesus would never have had to die? 
it would have been wasted suffering and a wasted trip. He didn't come as an emblem. He came uh, as your substitute to die in your place to pay the penalty, and you desperately need him. He said in John 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He didn't say I'm the best way. He did not say I'm one of many ways. He said I am the way. There is no other. So the Bible makes it clear that salvation is not of works. But when we read on, we find that uh, it is unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them, according to verse 10. Now, he said a mouthful here, but, you know, it's, uh, to me it seems strange that as many things as the Bible says change at salvation, we could even assume that all that could change and it not impact our conduct, it not impact our habits, it not impact our lives. For instance... Uh, the Bible tells us in Ephesians 2 and verse 1, you with he quickened which were dead in your trespasses and sins. They were physically alive and spiritually dead. And he said you were dead spiritually, now you're alive spiritually. And that didn't make any difference. You don't have a spiritual appetite. Have you ever noticed you don't have to teach babies to be hungry? When they're born, they have an appetite. There is a natural hunger. It doesn't have to be instigated or motivated. It comes naturally. And when people get born into the family of God, they come in with plenty of baggage. We all come in with baggage, but when there's new life, there's new appetite and new desire. And I'm afraid in some cases, that's not apparent. A lot of people claim to be saved, and they don't even want anything different. We're not talking about the success ratio as far as them succeeding in their spiritual growth. We're talking about even having a desire to grow in the grace of God, even having a spiritual appetite. So he talks about being dead. In Isaiah 57, verse 21, he said, There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. But the Bible tells me that believers have a peace that passes all understanding. So I went from no peace to a peace that passes all understanding, and it didn't impact me. I went from being dead spiritually to being born into the family of God and having spirit life, and it didn't impact me. Uh -huh. I went from being a child of the devil, John 8, verse 44, a year of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, abode not the truth. He's a liar and father of it. I went from being in that condition to being a child of God, according to John 1, verse 12. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. So I have a new father, my heavenly father, instead of the enemy of God, and it didn't impact me. You understand, when he talks about the father in Scripture, the father is the authority figure in Scripture. And when I was under, when I was a child of the devil, year of your father, the devil, he was the authority in my life. And he said, the lust of your father you will do. You were under his dominion. He was the authority. So no shock that you were practicing sin whenever you were a child of the devil. But now you're a child of God. What are you doing still practicing sin? Why do you have such an affinity to the past? Uh, uh, he tells us, uh, the joy is the fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and so on. He goes down the list. 
But if that's true, then unless if I'm dead spiritually, there is no joy. Well, I didn't say you couldn't have any pleasure. Hebrews 11 verse 25 talks about the pleasures of sin for a season. Well, I didn't say you couldn't have any fun, didn't say you couldn't have any sinful, carnal pleasure. Uh, problem is uh, that uh, those things don't seem to last and there's nothing spiritual about them. You understand that joy is a spiritual thing. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. So if I don't have the indwelling Holy Spirit and I'm still dead spiritually, I never have experienced joy. So I went from no joy to a joy unspeakable and full of glory, and it didn't impact me. I went from my old nature only, that fallen nature, to being partakers of the divine nature, 2 Peter 1, verse 4. And now the Holy Ghost of God lives in my body. Uh, do you think it's possible for God to move in? Let me ask you a question. If you moved into a house and it hadn't been occupied in a long time or whoever occupied it before you trashed it, would you move in and live in the trash or would you clean it up? Huh? You think God's going to live in the trash? He moved in. Or you think he's going to set out to clean it up? I'm telling you that I'm worried about a lot of people that know all the language. I'm afraid there are a lot of people that know all the language and give all the verbal answers but there's nothing really going on in their lives. Nothing really happened. You know, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is, not he should be, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. All things are of God, who hath reconciled us unto himself by Jesus Christ. Now that passage makes it clear. That reconciliation with God is exclusively based on the shed blood of Christ, not based on my works. But he did say that it impacts more than where I go when I die. You understand when you get saved, it doesn't just affect one thing. It affects everything. When you get saved, uh, in other words, I'm telling you there are a lot of folks that have the idea, well, you just get saved, that's your fire escape from hell, and then continue as you were. I don't even want to continue as I was. I mean, it doesn't even sound or look appealing anymore. That is not to say that we don't experience temptation after salvation or that we're not vulnerable or that we don't have a fallen nature. But when I got saved, uh, all of a sudden some things changed. Psalm 34 and verse 8, he said, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. There were some things I knew nothing of as a lost man. And when I got saved, all of a sudden, it changed my perspective of everything. And it was not just my final destination that changed. That certainly changed. I was going to hell, and now I'm going to heaven. And that changed for one reason, because I received Jesus Christ as my Savior. But when I received him, he did everything he promised in these other verses I was dead and he made me alive. I was lost and now I'm found. I was a child of the devil and now I'm a child of God. I had no peace. Now I have a peace that passes all understanding. I had no joy. Now I have a joy unspeakable and full of glory. I had a fallen nature. Now I have the divine nature. I still have a fallen nature, but in addition to that, the Holy Ghost of God lives in this body. So all these things change the impact in our lives. And he tells us in Philippians 2 and verse 13, 
Well, before I get that, let me just back up and dissect this text for a moment because we talked about the contrast here. The two extremes are here where people think you get saved by works and he refutes that in verse 8 and 9. And then uh, the fact that he expected this salvation to produce good works. So we are not saved of or by good works. However, we are saved unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Uh, it says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Uh, stay with me on this. If I came to the pulpit this morning and said to you, this pulpit is the product or it's the outcome of my workmanship. It's the fruit of my workmanship. Huh? What would I be trying to tell you? That I built it? Huh? Well, he said here uh, in this, for we are his workmanship. So suppose I told you that and you looked up here and there was a piece of molding hanging off the side and the whole pulpit was tilting to the right. You'd look at it and say, well, I wouldn't brag too much about building that. He ain't much of a carpenter. Huh? Do you understand God never fails, but because you and I have a free will, the perception of the world, we claim to be his and we are his workmanship if that's true, and they look at us and say, well, it ain't much of a transformation. Huh? It's a reflection on the workman. What the workmanship looks like is a reflection on the workman that built it. And if we are his workmanship, we better be careful about our testimony before men because we're going to give account of the impact that we have with our lives, and it's important that we represent him well. But I want to point out something else that he says in verse 10 which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now, God ordained me to preach. I'm not talking about when men laid hands on me, and I'm not opposed to that or preaching against that, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about God calling me to preach, God ordaining me to preach. Now, God ordained me to preach, and if I had never surrendered, and if I had never preached the first sermon, you understand that the judgment seat of Christ, I'm going to give account to God as a preacher. Because you do not become responsible or accountable at the point of surrender. You become accountable at the point of ordination, not the point of surrender. It's kind of like when I was a boy living at home. If my dad said, son, feed the dog. I did not become responsible to do that when I said, yes, sir. I became responsible when the command went forth. And if God has ordained us to bring forth good works, and it said he had before ordained, what he's telling us is this is not an afterthought. This is not some Baptist preacher trying to get more out of you. This is the plan from the beginning. God intended for your salvation to produce this kind of conduct when he established everything, it was more than just a fire escape from hell. He intended for it to affect these other areas of your life as well. And the Bible tells us in Philippians 2 and verse 13, For it is God that, that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Did you get that? 
it's God working in me. And what's he working to accomplish? First, the will, and second, to do his good pleasure. According to Revelation chapter 4, verses 10 to 11, everything that God created, he created for his pleasure. I know this may shock you. God didn't create you for your pleasure. God did not create me for my pleasure, nor did he create me for your pleasure. He created me for his pleasure. It's equally true that God did not create you for your pleasure, but rather for his pleasure. So the Bible tells us it is God that worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The first thing God's trying to do is get me to want to please him. God's not trying to get me to do what I don't want to do. He's trying to change my heart so I want to please him. That's the first work that he's doing. It is God that worketh in you both to will and to do. So God's not looking for me doing my begrudging duty while I complain about having to do this. God wants to change my heart so that I want to please him and I'm excited about the opportunity to please him and when I find out what pleases him, it's a pleasure to perform it because I have a heart to do it. So it's important that our heart be right. If you remember, Acts 8 and verse 26, I believe it is, uh, you have Simon who makes a profession of faith and then he wants the power of God so he can lay hands on people and they can receive the Holy Ghost. And Peter said to him, Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Thou hast neither part nor lot. We're going to try to have revival this week. I'd like for your heart to be right so you can have part in it. But if your heart's not right, you can show up for the meeting and desperately need to because if there's any hope of it getting right, it'll be through the conviction of the Spirit of God. But if you're going to have part in what, if you're going to contribute, if God's going to use you, if you're going to be blessed, if you're going to experience personal revival, if God's going to use you to affect somebody else, your heart has to be right. And that's never an accident. If my heart's right, I choose to get it right and keep it right. And so he said, uh, Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Make sure that's not the case with you. But it is God that worketh in you. So God's in me. And if you're saved, God is in you. And he's at work. What's he trying to do? Both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God first wants to change your will and then change your conduct. You understand that if Bible preaching on any topic makes you feel oppressed, your heart's not right in the sight of God. Let me say it to you again. If Bible preaching, Bible preaching on any topic makes you feel oppressed, your heart's not right in the sight of God. I don't care if it has to do with tithing or standards or soul winning or service or consecration or whatever it is. Really doesn't matter. Uh, but if Bible truth may, oppresses me, my heart's not right because James 1 verse 25 tells us this book is not oppressive. The Bible, he said, whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. But I have to look into the perfect law of what? Oppression? No, he said, if I have a heart to do right, 
Nothing excites me more than finding out how. You know, if you really want to do right and somebody shows you what right is, that does not oppress you, it liberates you. Because you're frustrated. I want to do right and I don't know what right is. So when somebody shows you what's right from the Word of God, inerrant, infallible, every word Bible, when they show you what's right, all of a sudden it liberates me, it sets me free, I'm no longer uh, struggling, I'm not wondering, I know what's right and that's what I want to do anyway, so now I have Bible truth to guide me. But there are a lot of people that really, there are certain topics they don't want to hear any preaching on because they have their mind made up and don't want to be confused with the facts. And they're not going to change and they don't want anybody to make them feel bad. Huh? And preachers are not trying to make people feel bad. They're trying to help them see the truth so they'll get under conviction. Spirit of God will work and they'll respond to the Word of God and the Spirit of God and get help. But I'm going to tell you, when you're under conviction, it's not comfortable. It's not a pleasurable experience. And if you're not going to get right, you'll get out. You won't stay under conviction 52 weeks a year and not get right. If the pulpit's hot enough, one of two things will happen. People get right or they'll get out. And you're hoping they'll get right, but if you don't give them enough truth to get them under conviction and nothing happens, they just sit there and die. Everybody else dies with them. Huh? So the Bible tells us that God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And in Colossians, remember now, it's God that worketh in us both the will and do of his good pleasure. In Colossians 1 and verse 29, the Bible says, striving according to his working that worketh in us mightily. We are supposed to be striving according to his working that worketh in us mightily. Wait a minute, what's he working? It is God that worketh in you both to what? Will? and to do of his good pleasure. And Colossians 1 and verse 29 said that I am supposed to be striving according to or in harmony with his working that worketh in me mightily. So what does that mean? That means I'm, I'm supposed to be trying to become what he's trying to make me. You know, the word strive is an interesting word. To strive in the context of the Bible means to engage in a struggle and to exhaust all of one's resources in that struggle. So the Bible tells me that God's trying to cause me both to will and do of his good pleasure, and I'm supposed to enter into a struggle to become what God's trying to make me. I'm supposed to strive in harmony with the Word of God, in harmony with the Spirit of God. I'm supposed to labor and struggle and exhaust all of my resources to will and do of his good pleasure because that's what he's doing on the inside and that's what I'm supposed to be doing in cooperation with the Spirit of God. Now I'm afraid oftentimes we're guilty of doing the opposite. You remember now, this is when Saul of Tarsus was lost. But when it, <laughs> here's what we do. Sometimes even as believers. When he met Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, uh, he had his encounter, and he said, Who art thou, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. What'd that mean? Uh, he had been fighting Holy Ghost conviction from the end of chapter 7 
where he held the garments of those who stoned Stephen and gave consent against him, saw his face as an angel, heard him testify as he departed this life as a martyr, and Paul did not want to believe that he was wrong. He was a Pharisee. He was religious. He was sincere. How could he possibly be wrong? Huh? He had been kicking against the pricks of conviction, fighting Holy Ghost conviction from the end of Acts chapter 7 to the beginning of Acts chapter 9. And I'm afraid too often when the Lord deals with us, instead of us struggling and laboring to become what he's trying to make us, we start kicking against the pricks. And that makes it worse. That's more painful. You say, what is a prick? It's a wooden stick with a point made on it. They didn't have, I know this will shock you, but they didn't have electric cattle prods in that day. But they did have those ox goads, which was what they also called a prick. It was a stick with a pointed end. The object was not to damage the animal. The object was to create enough discomfort to get them to move and go the direction they were supposed to go. But if they jabbed them in the back of the leg to get them to move and they kicked against the pricks, oftentimes they would wound themselves when they kicked. Made this a more painful experience. Not just discomfort, this would come downright painful. Now you can make things worse if you want to, but why would you want to? Do you honestly think you know better than God? When the Lord's dealing with you, you can't trust him? I can't do what the Lord wants me to do because it would ruin my life, really. Kind of like it doomed you to hell too. I can trust him with my eternal soul and I can't trust him with my conduct, with my apparel, with my finances, with my habits, with my... Huh? I mean, if I can trust him with my soul, I can trust him with anything. So if you're already saved and you trusted him to get you to heaven and that's what you're dependent upon, I assure you, you're going to be far better off of when you find out what he wants. You just trust him with it and say, okay, I don't understand, but I can trust you with this. And I'm going to trust you with this. And I'm going to struggle and labor to become what you're trying to make me. So he tells us, you say, well, preacher, how you know what's good? Well, in Luke 18, 18, we have the rich young ruler who says to Jesus, good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said, I want to do something to earn heaven. Now, if you look at that passage of scripture, uh, Jesus said, well, just keep the commandments. What he was telling him is, if you want to get to heaven by doing something, all you have to do is live a perfect life. Well, too late for that. I was born in sin. Huh? When he told him that, the young man's response said, was all these have I kept from my youth? And Jesus said, oh, really? He said, okay, go sell everything you have and follow me. Give it to the poor and follow me. And he went away sorrowful. You say, is that how you get saved? No. He was exposing the young man's sin of covetousness. He may have been moral in a lot of areas, but he was not without sin, and Jesus exposed his sin when he did that. So he wasn't telling him that some people get saved by selling everything they have and giving it to the poor. The guy said, I've kept the whole law. I've done this my youth. So whatever you said, I guess I'm okay. And he said, no, not quite. Go sell everything, give it to the poor, and you'll be all right. He went away sorrowful. But... Uh, before Jesus even responded in that manner, when the young man said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said, good master. Jesus said, why callest thou me good? 
there is none good but one. He said, that's God. None good but God. What was saying, preacher? He was, what he was asking the young man is this. He said, are you trying to flatter me or are you acknowledging my deity? Because if I'm not God, I'm not good. So please stay with me. If there's none good but God, then good works are God's works, and God's works are outlined in the Scripture. No wonder Matthew 4, 4 says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. I'm supposed to live by the Word of God. I'm supposed to look into the perfect law of liberty and continue therein, being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. So the Bible makes it clear in James 1 verse 22, he said, be a doers of the word, not hearers only. So he makes it clear, very, very clear, that good works are God's works. God's works are outlined in the scripture. You know, Jesus, the Bible tells us in Acts 10 verse 38, he went about doing good. It didn't say he went about being good. Now, he certainly did that. But he went about doing good. And everywhere he went, there were multitudes that followed him. Lives were transformed. He told his disciples in Matthew 4 and verse 19, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Wait a minute. If he went about doing good and I follow him, what do you reckon I'm going to be doing? He gave people the gospel. Don't misunderstand that. I'm not implying that you don't give the gospel, but he did more than just give the gospel. He went about doing good. He went about ministering to need, not only spiritual need, but every need. Huh? And maybe if you and I went about doing good, got a little more concerned about the needs of people instead of a notch in our pistol handle. Honestly, I'm for being aggressive, going after sinners. I want to persuade men. I want to reap the harvest. And you'll find that out whenever I give an invitation. I work it hard because I'm burdened for souls and want to see people respond now because they may not have later. So don't misunderstand. Don't misread what I'm saying. I'm talking about, I'm not talking about not being aggressive and pressing the issue, persuading men. I'm talking about actually being concerned about some of the things that are not the most pressing issue in their life, but they think it is. You know, um, I was a bus director one time, and I started a bus route in a little town called Creslow. And it was a town close to Johnstown, Pennsylvania. And um, I had about 40 people coming on the bus, 35, 40 people, and I had some kids came out of this house every week. And I witnessed the daddy probably four or five times, maybe a half a dozen. He was a truck driver. And after I witnessed him about a half dozen times, he started hiding. You know what I'm talking about. You knock on the door, and he's always busy somewhere hiding. And uh, so they still kept, I mean, the kids came every week, and I loved it. And So I kept visiting them every week. Well, uh, time passed, and there was a flood in Johnstown. Now, if you know history, then you know about the flood of 1889. That's not what I'm talking about. I know I look bad, but I'm not that old. So it wasn't the flood of 1889. But... Um, they had a flood in Johnstown and it affected that little community. A few people actually died as a result of being swept away in the flood waters and so on. Everybody was affected and for a couple of weeks we couldn't get in there with the bus and 
when we finally could get in there with the bus, uh, I went over and knocked on the door. And uh, the lady of the house came to the door, and I talked to her and asked her if the kids were coming. She said, yes. Her husband's name was Ed. And I said, where's Ed today? And she said, oh, he's down in the basement. I said, what's he doing in the basement? Said he's down there digging mud out. Said the whole basement's full of mud. This flood filled it with mud, ruined the furnace. Said we got to get cleaned out and get the furnace out of there and get a new one in before winter. I said, you have another shovel? And she said, uh, yeah, why? I said, I just wondered. She said, yeah, she had full of them. I said, okay. And I turned around when I left there and told my staff, I said, uh, my worker's on the bus. I said, hey, I said, you go ahead and finish the route and make some make some. Uh, new calls, and I said, I'm going to stick around here and shovel mud. And uh, I went out to the shed, got a shovel, and uh, went into the basement. Now, the, the mud was knee-deep. I waded in that mud with a pair of dress shoes and a pair of suit pants on. I waded in, started shoveling mud. Guy head on the other side, he looked at me, he said, well, what are you doing? I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm shoveling mud. I said, look at you like I'm doing something different. He said, well, well, no, but he said, you have a suit on. I said, boy, you're really perceptive, buddy. He just kind of grinned. I didn't even try to witness to him that day. I mean, I talked to him about church and about coming to church and thanked him for letting the kids come. I shoveled mud for about five hours, and I was the young guy then. No more. No more. That's over with. But I was the young guy, and I pulled the wheelbarrow out, take it, dump it down over the creek bank, and come back. And I did that for about five hours. We got most of the mud out of the basement that day. And uh, next morning, we came by to pick the kids up, and we were a little early. Got there, I went up and knocked on the door, and he came door. He said, oh, he said, you know, they're not ready yet, preacher. He said, uh, he said, you got time for a cup of coffee? And I said, well, I probably won't be able to finish it, but I'll, I'll drink a cup with you. He said, come on in. He invited me in. He got the coffee handed to me. He said, you know, and he said, you've been talking to me about getting saved. And I said, yes, sir. He said, I think I'm ready to do that now. Listen to me. He had to hear the gospel. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. The gospel of Christ is the power of God and the salvation. He had heard the gospel five or six times. What five or six gospel presentations couldn't do, shoveling mud could get done. Because he concluded this guy actually does care. This is not just a religious exercise. Huh? This is not just about church membership or getting somebody. He actually cares. And somewhere along the line, you and I need to begin to walk in the steps of Savior. First Peter 2 and verse 21 tells us we're supposed to walk in his steps. And everywhere that Jesus went, he went ahead and met the need. You know, D.L. Moody was asked to preach a funeral, and he had never at that time preached one. So he decided he would go to the New Testament and find out what Jesus preached at a funeral and do that. But when he went to the New Testament, he found that Jesus never preached a funeral either because when he came to a dead body, he raised it. Uh, Moody couldn't quite do what Jesus did, so he had to figure out how to preach a funeral sermon. But what I'm saying is this, everywhere that Jesus went, he went about doing good. And if we're going to be Christians, copies of the original Christ, we need to go about doing good. And I understand the biggest need that people have is salvation, no doubt. Absolutely. But if they understood that, they would already be saved. They have things they're worried about and burdened about, 
And you and I need to enter into that sorrow, enter into that burden, enter into that labor, and try to be a blessing while we give them the cure to their greatest problem. We need to be a little more interested in going about doing good. And so the Bible says we're not saved of or by good works. However, we are saved unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Good works is not the means of salvation. But salvation does. And so good works don't produce salvation. But salvation does and should produce good works. I wonder this morning how many of us in this crowd can honestly say, Preacher, if I died where I sit right now, I am 100% sure I'd go to heaven. I'm born again. Know it for sure if you could honestly say that. Would you slip a hand up good and high as a testimony? There's any doubt at all. Don't raise it. Just be honest. All right, God bless you. You can put it back down. I want us to bow our heads for just a moment. And I wonder if there's somebody here say, Preacher, I'm not going to lie to you. If I had to die right now where I sit, I am not 100% sure that I'd go to heaven. But I do want to go to heaven when I die. Please pray for me if that's you. Would you slip your hand up good and high? Yes, God bless you. I see your hand. God bless you. Yes, God bless you. Buddy, else of these three, this preacher, I'm not going to lie to you. I don't know for sure if I die to go to heaven, but I want to know that. I want to go to heaven when I die. Pray for me. Anybody else quickly? Yes, God bless you. Yes, ma'am. Somebody else. Father, thank you for these four, and I pray, Holy Spirit of God, you'd convict and draw and minister to the need, bind the enemy, and I pray that they'd understand the urgency of the matter and get it settled in Jesus' name. Listen closely, please. No music yet, and I want every head bowed, please, every eyes closed, except those four of you that raised your hand. If you lifted your hand, I want you right now, if you would, please, very quietly where you sit, I want you to just lift your head. Open your eyes and look right up here at me. I'm not going to come to you. I have no desire to embarrass you. I want to help you. All right. Did you mean that? You'd like to be saved? No. Did you mean that? Did you mean that down here? And did you mean that, sir? Am I right? You're not ashamed of Jesus, are you? Not ashamed of Christ. You're not ashamed of him, are you? You're not ashamed of Jesus. You're not ashamed of him, are you, ma'am? Listen to me closely. If you'd like to be saved and know it for sure as you indicated and you are not ashamed of Jesus Christ, I want those of you that raised a hand, you're looking at me. I want you right now very quietly just stand to your feet right where you're at. Would you do that? Just stand up for the Lord Jesus. There's one. There's another and another and another. Would you do that? Just stand up and remain standing. You see the preacher standing here? Nobody's looking but me, you, and the preacher. If you're standing, I want you, if you would, sir, if you'd just step out and then I'll come. Preacher, I'll meet you down.